0: For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found.
1: Amen. Good morning. My name is Adam, and I'm a director of fifth grade through 12th grade, as well as the Emerging Leaders Program here at Lakeland, and I'm super excited to be here. Uh, today will be the first of a short two-part series on probably the most famous of Jesus' parables, the Parable of the Prodigal Son." Now I do want to say at the outset that it's really important uh, to be able to hear both of these messages together. They really fit. This week's and next week's together. Now, you might be saying, that sounds like a really good ploy just to get us to come back using marketing strategies on us. And that's not true. Okay, it's kind of true. But it's for a good purpose. Besides, you don't want to leave halfway through a movie, right? You wouldn't wouldn't stop watching a movie halfway through. So if you can't make it next Sunday, uh, I think it really is, uh, it would be great. If you could listen to the podcast, um, I think it really will be more meaningful with both of these messages together. Now, before we jump into the text, I want to tell you about Christopher McCandless. Chris McCandless is a hero, a model to be emulated, a pioneer, a trailblazer, a spiritual guide, or Chris McCandless is a complete and utter fool. For many in my generation, and some younger than me, Chris McCandless is quite a polarizing figure. If you don't have a strong opinion about Chris McCandless, it probably means you don't know who he is. But hey, we can fix that this morning. After graduating from Emory University in 1990, McCandless was admitted to attend Harvard Law School the following fall. However fighting against what he perceived to be oppressive societal structure and parental expectations. McCandless instead packed up his Datsun, anybody remember those? (laughs) And headed west. Driving, hiking, kayaking, hitchhiking his way throughout the west. McCandless eventually decided to take on the behemoth of all outdoor terrain, Alaska. Taking only what he could fit in a fairly small backpack, McCandless began trekking through the giant frozen state, living off the land with only a rifle, a guidebook on local floral and fauna, and his own um, own desire to buck the expectations of society and to find his own life somewhere out there in the wilderness. McCandless's body was found about five months later by a hunter. Official cause of death, starvation. It's obviously a tragic story with an ending absolutely nobody had hoped for. But the reason McCandless is such a polarizing figure, countless people found his story to be inspiring. In 1996, John Krakauer wrote a book about McCandless's life and death, called Into the Wild, and many readers instantly connected with McCandless's passion for adventure and radical self-reliance. They too sensed that there was something sinister about the way that cultural expectations were heaped onto young people, defining for them what success and accomplishment looked like. Ten years later, a movie version presented McCandless' story to a new and slightly younger audience, and the phenomenon of his hero worship only increased. Hundreds and hundreds of young people who resonated with this story mapped out and followed precisely McCandless' journey into and through Alaska, some of them narrowly avoiding death themselves, and some didn't actually make it. And still, the chorus of voices supporting and even celebrating these journeys continued to mount. McCandless's sister is quoted in the movie as saying, Chris had spent four years fulfilling the absurd and tedious duty of graduating from college, and now... He was emancipated from that world of distraction, false security, parents, and material excess. The things that cut Chris off from the truth of his existence. More and more in the culture around us today, we find this sort of narrative. This quest for self-discovery and self-fulfillment being held up as the key to happiness the meaning of life. The world says only you can decide what's right and wrong for you. Do what you want to do. Find your own true self, and then you will be happy. Then you will be saved. To quote a real rebel against the establishment, every turn I take, every trail I track, every path I make, Every road leads back to the place I know where I cannot go, where I long to be. And another. Let it go. Let it go. Can't hold it back anymore. Let it go. Let it go. Turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. (laughs) No, those were not quotes from Pancho Villa and William Wallace, but close, Moana and Elsa. Yes, the culture around us is full of very loud voices, and yes, we began to be shaped by them at a very early age. And in first century Palestine, apparently some of these same voices existed. As we find Jesus painting the picture of a very similar character, someone that he refers to simply as the younger son. The text gives us quite the introduction to the younger son in this story. Uh, Our first impression of him is stunning, shocking, outrageous, or at least it would have been to the people gathered around Jesus listening to this story. Immediately after telling us about a father who had two sons, the text says that the younger son approached the father with the following request. Give me the share of the property that is coming to me. In other words, I want my inheritance, and I want it right now. Now, there are two things that might have been particularly appalling to the people that were listening to Jesus about this request. One is the complete lack of respect in the way that the son addresses the father. The verb forgive here is a command in the original Greek. Give me the share of property. The son is bossing the father around like a subordinate. Now this might strike you as mildly disrespectful. Although if any of you have a two and a half year old at home as I do, you're probably used to receiving commands from children. But if we put this story in the context of the time and culture that Jesus was speaking to, the shock value increases exponentially. This was not a culture that would have found it at all amusing for a son to jokingly refer to his parents by their first names or for a daughter to call her dad old man. This was a culture that valued respect and deference to elders, and specifically to fathers, above almost all else. Leviticus 19 commands people to literally stand up whenever in the presence of elders as a show of respect. The second thing that would have upset Jesus' original audience was the implication of the Son's request. The Living Bible translation of this verse cuts right to the heart of the matter. I want my share of your estate now instead of waiting until you die. The younger son is basically admitting that he would rather the father be dead and he have the father's money than for the father to be alive and with him any longer. Again, consider how disrespectful this would seem if a son or daughter said these words to you now in today's culture. Now multiply that by about 50, give or take, and we might be approaching the level of disrespect that a parent in Jesus' day would have felt. So what would Jesus' audience have expected the father in the story to do? Likely to drive the son away angrily, possibly with physical blows or cursing, as though he were tailgating at arrowhead, But what did the father actually do? He simply divided the property up between the two sons. Again, if we don't dig a little bit deeper into the culture here, we might miss some of the significance of this act. The Greek word used for property here is bios. In English letters, B-I-O-S might seem familiar to you. This word doesn't actually mean property. It means life. Now, it's referring to the Father's property, for sure. But it's also telling us that in this time, in this culture, property was equivalent to life. Your land was your anchor. It was the way you produced food. It was your shelter. It was how you protected and provided for generations of family to come. It was your wealth and your legacy it was your life. And in Jesus' story, the father, rather humbly and without fuss, divides the property up according to the inheritance laws or customs of the time. This would have required him to sell at least part of his land in order to liquidate it, to turn it into cash, something that the son could have physically taken with him. So he did. He sold a portion of his property, of his life, and simply gave it away to his younger son. As I already read today, that there's a huge climax to the story coming. There's closer to the end where we see this amazing act of grace on the part of the father. But let's not skip over too quickly this first act of grace shown by the father toward his son. We can all agree that the father likely saw the son's request as completely and utterly foolish, right? I mean, the father knows how this is going to turn out. Giving his son a bunch of money so that he can go and party with all of his friends, some might call that college. But let's be honest, this is not going to turn out well. It's like a horror movie where a character continues to make bad decision after bad decision, right? Just bringing destruction on herself. And everybody, literally everyone in the world can see it but her. The father is living this kind of bad dream in the story. He sees his son's brash and disrespectful attitude. He sees the error of his way of thinking. He can probably imagine the disaster that lies ahead for him. And yet, he grants his request, gives the son what he asks for. He allows the son to make a huge mistake. Why? Don't we do this as parents? Don't we have to sometimes? My son is two. He is not yet awesome at climbing things. But I want him to be. Someday, I would like for him to learn to climb better and better all the time. But how do I do that? Every time that I see him tottering up the stairs to the treehouse or attempting to scale the rock wall at the park, do I run over and grab him and pull him back off to safety? I want to. I really, really want to. Everything in my being is screaming, danger, danger, remove toddler from injury device. But I know that if I do this every time, it won't help him. It won't teach him to become a better climber. Now, he might scrape up his knees a time or two, and I won't be happy about that. I'll be sad if he's hurt. But the important thing is that he finds out for himself what he can and can't do. He must learn his own lessons, make his own mistakes. Otherwise, he won't actually learn them. The younger son, as we read in today's scripture, most certainly learns a lesson. He finds himself out of money, out of friends, broken down with nothing, not a dime to his name, almost completely helpless and hopeless. He hires himself out to a local citizen, the story tells us, who has him taking care of pigs. Pigs? For a Jewish person? Literally one of the worst jobs imaginable. So the son finally decides, enough is enough. It's time to go back home. As we mentioned earlier, the father's second act of grace in the story is outlandish. As soon as the father could possibly see the son, the text tells us that the son was still a long way off. The father leaps to his feet and takes off running to go and meet his son. Now, let's be clear this is not something that a distinguished ancient Middle Eastern patriarch would do. It's not. In order to run, it requires you, it would have required you to pull up. I realize nobody really wears robes today. This was in the past. You'd have to pull up your robe with your hands, exposing your bare legs. This is something a child would do, perhaps a teenager, but not the head of a family, not the owner of the estate. Once again, again, Jesus' listeners would have felt absolutely scandalized by this part of the story. They would have thought it shameful for any well respected father to behave this way. And of course, Jesus knew this. It was intentional on his part to describe the father in this way. It was important for him to convey that shame was no deterrent for the father's love and forgiveness. Ridicule was nothing compared to the joy of reconciliation with his lost son. And as the father approaches, the son begins to go back over his repentance speech in his head. The approach is pretty simple. Apologize, admit foolishness, and ask the father to take him back on as a hired man. This last request is interesting. To be a hired man meant that you lived in a nearby village, not on the estate itself, and worked various trade jobs for local landowners in order to earn a wage. Now, this shows humility on the son's part, for sure, as well as an acknowledgment that based on his actions alone, he probably doesn't deserve to be called or treated as a son by the father that he dishonored and disrespected. He's saying, I don't even deserve to live here. I realize that. But there's something more going on here, too. To work as a hired man could be a way to repay the money that he had squandered from the father's estate, essentially to pay restitution through labor. It seems like a reasonable request. I probably personally would have gone for this idea. And I'm sure Jesus' listeners would have been thinking, yeah, that's a good way to possibly reclaim some of the honor that the father has lost, to reestablish justice within the family and the community. But the father, the father will hear none of this. He literally will not hear it. He doesn't even allow the son to finish his statement. He cuts him off mid-sentence, not to berate him or give him an I told you so, but to grab him, weeping and kissing his face, absolutely falling apart in pure joy at the return of his son. Now, it's important to understand that this scene does more than just paint a picture of a happy reunion. The father in the story By fully accepting and reinstating his son without even an apology, let alone restitution, is himself bearing the weight of any disrespect, any lack of honor, any hurt feelings over previously rejected love. Now, in some ways, a beautiful story like this really best exists on its own merits without a need for morals or lessons. At the same time, there really is so much going on here that I wanted to attempt to summarize the best I could with three key takeaways. So here's takeaway number one. Where God's transformational love and forgiveness are authentically and believably proclaimed, the most outcast, discarded, and even hated among society, will be drawn to his grace. I think this is huge and so easy to overlook. But we're not going to overlook it this morning. When we read through the Gospels, we find Jesus constantly attracting countless numbers of younger brother and sister types With his message, these are the people who are coming to hear him. And these people are absolutely blown away by what he has to say. Years ago, I read this statement in the book Prodigal God by Timothy Keller, which was definitely the inspiration for this two-part series. And this statement still haunts me to this very day if we are not drawing the same types of people with our message that Jesus drew with his message, there's only one possible logical conclusion. We are not preaching the same gospel. This should be keeping us up at night. I mean, I have to tell you, I don't really think the Western church is knocking this one out of the park, guys. Guys. I think church leaders and church congregations worldwide should really be engaging in some self-assessment on this issue. But let us also be encouraged by the hope found in this truth where God's love and forgiveness, a transformational love and forgiveness, are authentically and believably proclaimed the most outcast, the most discarded, the most hated among society will be drawn to his grace. Amen? Amen. Takeaway number two. We were made by the king to live like princes and princesses, yet we daily choose to spend our time slopping pigs in the dirt and the mud and the feces of this world. I want to very briefly return to the story of Chris McCandless, a true younger son type if we've ever seen one. Now, while the younger son in Jesus' story lived out his quest for self-discovery with wild and, frankly, indecent behavior, McCandless sought out his self-fulfillment in the simple ambition to connect with nature and live off the land. Two very different approaches, but for the same underlying goal. To cast off the oppressive box that society attempts to put us in. To get out from under the proverbial thumb of authority. And to divine for ourselves what success and happiness look like. And for those who resonate with this, who might see some or even a lot of yourselves in what I'm describing, What I'm going to say next might surprise you. I think he was right. His perception of a heartless, oppressive tradition of authority in the world was intuitive. He was valid in feeling that the world has an overly narrow definition of love and success and meaning in life, but at the same time, he was also wrong. He was wrong in seeking true freedom and joy and meaning in yet another place that he would never find it, by attempting to completely escape the world and all its flaws. He was wrong to say, my purpose and meaning in life is only what I make them. He was wrong to believe he could simply run from society, from family, from community, and thus avoid the pain that they can all too often cause. And even before his unfortunate death, I believe Chris McCandless began to understand this too. You see, at the very end, when he was too weak to even move, McCandless found himself distraught and alone. And he scrawled these words into his journal somewhere out there in the Alaskan wilderness. Happiness only real when shared. Amen. Let's take it a step further. Happiness only real when shared with the one who desires so intensely to help us find it. How can we not immediately picture the younger son in Jesus' story, alone in a pig pen, wondering how it had taken him this long to realize what it was he had truly been seeking? There is nothing wrong with desiring freedom and meaning and fulfillment. But what the younger son in the story had to realize was that none of those things were found in the partying and the crazy living he was pursuing. He did finally experience them, though, didn't he? And this is a truly amazing part of the story, especially as it pertains to applying it to our own lives He finally found the freedom and the meaning and the fulfillment that he wanted when he returned home. When he came back to the place that he had previously fled and was wrapped up and embraced in the love of his father. This is what God is trying to tell us each and every day of our lives. He is just desperately trying to catch our attention, practically shouting anytime he catches our ear for even a brief moment. And he says, you are meant for so much glory, for so much real living, but that can only be found in the full acceptance and grace of the Heavenly Father and through an actual real-life relationship with him. Finally, takeaway number three. You know, it is not the younger son who is the most prodigal character in this story. For years, I misunderstood the meaning of the name of this parable, the parable of the prodigal son. I always assumed, by context, that the meaning of the word prodigal was wayward or even perhaps returning but it's not. (laughs) It actually means recklessly extravagant, spending everything. Now, it's not difficult to see how this term would apply to the younger son in the story, of course. He is recklessly extravagant in his lifestyle after he leaves home, spending literally everything he has on whatever he can find. But the most recklessly extravagant thing that we find in this entire story is the love and forgiveness of the Father. And the most recklessly extravagant thing that has ever existed or will ever exist in the history of the universe is the love and forgiveness of God accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Christ... God didn't just sell off part of his land. He gave up his entire life for us. Like the father in the story, Jesus bore the weight of disrespect, dishonor, and rejected love. He was stripped naked so that we might wear the robe of honor. He was killed so that we might have full and vitalizing life. he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know, there are two kinds of rich people in the world. they are the kind of rich people who don't typically show off their wealth. Perhaps they never really learned how to live the lifestyle that typically accompanies riches. Or maybe... They just don't want other people to know that they're wealthy. There could be a lot of different reasons for that. And then there's the second kind of rich people. We might call this type Kardashians. These are the people who are rich and not afraid to flaunt it. Big chains, fancy watches, sports cars making it rain in the clubs. And when it comes to his wealth, and this might be surprising, but God is the second kind of rich. When it comes to the richness of his love and mercy and forgiveness, God is a crazy kind of wealthy. He is utterly lavish. Ridiculously extravagant with his love and his grace poured out for us. God is truly prodigal. We don't fully understand it. This blubbering, weeping figure we encounter, placing kisses on our forehead, sobbing uncontrollably in joy. Men aren't supposed to behave this way. Fathers are supposed to be cool, calm, collected. God is supposed to be mighty and all-powerful. We can't fully understand it, and yet we do. Every time we ourselves get teary-eyed or weep outright at a hopeful and beautiful story of reconciliation on screen, we do understand it. When we see forgiveness poured out for another, or hear a story of a selfless and daring rescue, despite ourselves, we understand it and we hope for it. We ache for it deep down in our souls with a yearning that defies complete comprehension. This is what we were created for, to love and to be loved by the one who made us. The one who watches over us. The one who waits silently, day after day after day, watching in the distance for any sign of his wayward children so that he might grab us and pull us back into himself. The modern worship him asks the question, how deep the Father's love for us? But we can give an answer. God himself has given us the answer. By not just waiting on the porch for us. Guys, this is huge. Not just waiting on the porch for us, but by coming after us. Searching town after town after town. Asking literally everyone he sees until he picks up our trail again. By going down himself into the mud and the muck and the dung of the pig pen so that he might pull us back out. This is the deep, abiding, searching love of Jesus Christ. We're going to continue now in the spirit of praise and prayer and worship um, as a, in a response to God and So we're going to play a song, and I really want you guys to to feel free to do whatever you feel led to do in response and worship uh, to this, to connect with this Father whose love really is so transformational, whether that means standing and and praising and singing or just staying in your seats and letting the words wash over you and letting this be a moment to connect with our Heavenly Father who is so good. May the God who has loved us and continues to love us with the sacrifice and selfless love of Christ continue to be real to us in a way that changes us from the inside out. And may we realize each and every day that nothing strengthens and emboldens and mellows and perfects like sitting in adoration of the one who adores us. Go in the true hope and fulfillment and meaning of Jesus Christ. Amen.